This year today is not about one particular life challenge. It is about principles of life and growth. Generally, I do not ever use the example of infertility when I teach or speak. I have been blessed not to have personally experienced this very difficult life circumstance, and therefore I do not understand how it feels, nor would I ever pretend to. But I did not pick this example in the Navi, Hashem did. And Chazal chose to have us read on Rosh Hashanah. So despite my inadequacy, and after speaking with many people who I respect and trust, I am cautiously going to study this part of the Navi with you and see what we all can learn about it for our own lives. So anyone who has a child in TDSA or themselves has gone there knows about silent carpool. What is silent carpool? In TDSA, silent carpool means that no one's allowed to talk during carpool because if anyone is talking, then Moradina cannot hear Rabbi Cohen and Rabbi Horowitz say the parents' names on the walkie-talkie, and then she cannot call the appropriate child. So everyone has to be silent. So once upon a time, I had my own silent carpool. I used to go to a shir in Yerushalayim, and I was blessed to have a car. And I went every week religiously for six years, which is a long time to go to a shir. And because I had a car and most people didn't, my car was always full. And um, the conversations in the car were occasionally less than intelligent, especially on the way back, because the shear was a very straightforward shear. The woman has a very strong personality, and she used to tell it like it is. And um, the way back was often filled with very interesting and less than insightful comments. And I never said a word because what was the point? But one day, and this stands out because it was the one time I spoke in silent carpool, was um, when the woman who gave the shear told a story. So now we have a story within a story. She was talking about having appreciation for your children. And she said that she who... Um, herself had 13 children, was asked to give a share to a group of women who were struggling with infertility. And at first she was so very uncomfortable with the idea of doing so because what did she know about infertility? And they asked her to do it anyway because one of the women had a connection to her and really liked her. And she went and they had such a good connection that they asked her to keep doing it regularly. And once a month, she would drive 45 minutes to the shear, give a shear for an hour and drive 45 minutes back. And who was she going to have watch her kids during bedtime for three hours once a month? So she had a sister who was much younger than her, obviously, who was not yet married. And her sister was the quintessential fun aunt. She was the kid's favorite by far. She was so much fun. She was so exciting. They loved when she came. So she figured, okay, once a month, my sister will come for three hours and I'll go do this shear. The only problem was that every single month when she would come back, her house looked like a hurricane had hit. There was clothing everywhere. There was food everywhere on the floor, on the walls. Sinks piled high, high up with dishes. She would have to go around the house untangling and resorting all the toys, picking up clothes, etc. 
she said that it was the most amazing thing because this woman gave her, these women gave her such an appreciation for her children that she would walk into the house and she would pick up Yankee's pants on the floor and say, Prach Hashem for Yankee. And then she would be scrubbing Rifkala's scribble off the wall and she would be saying, Prach Hashem for Rifkala. And then she would go this same way the entire night. She said what was really amazing was that no matter how much appreciation I had for my children that night, okay, so it faded. But these women who were in the shear, some of whom eventually had children, their appreciation never faded. They always had the perspective of what a gift I have in front of me. So this girl was sitting in the back of my car and she said, one said to the other, how did you like this year tonight? And the other said, I didn't like it. I don't agree with her. I think she's wrong. And the other girl said, what do you mean she thinks she's wrong? She said, well, I don't see why I can't achieve the same level of appreciation. If I focus and I pay attention and I work on my hakarasatov and my appreciation, I can have the same level of appreciation for my children just because I had them at 20 for someone who didn't have children. And she said, and even if I had to, you know, have that perspective of maybe I won't have a child or something like that, I did have that because my older brother struggled with infertility, so I knew about this type of thing. And I don't see why these women necessarily have a higher level of appreciation for children than I do. So... Normally, I wouldn't have said anything, but there was something about this that fundamentally bothered me. And what I would like to ask you tonight is, is she wrong? Definitely was insensitive. There are a lot of insensitive things that are actually correct. Is she just insensitive or is she also wrong? So let's see if we can figure that out by studying the story of Hannah and Shmuel. So in front of you, you have the first parak in Sefer Shmuel, in which Elkanah has two wives. Hana was his first wife, and Penina, his second wife. Elkanah used to go with Hana and Penina every year to Shiloh, where the Mishkan was, for the Shalash Regalim. And every year, Hana would go with him and pray for a child. And one particular year, she went to pray for a child to go for the Shalash Regalim, and she was so upset that she could not eat. And Alkana was very upset, and he said, you know, don't you love your life? Aren't I better for you than ten children? Chana refused to be comforted, and she went to go to the Mishkan, to Davin. So when she was there, the Pasuk says, she was bitter, and she davened Hashem, and she cried. And she made a promise that if Hashem gave her a child, she would give the child to Hashem, meaning he would live in the Mishkan his whole life. And he would be a Nazir. And Eli was listening to her daven. And this is what he heard. Chana was speaking on her heart. So the simple explanation of the Pasuk was meaning she was speaking quietly in her heart, but it doesn't say this is on her heart. 
only her lips were moving. And you couldn't hear her voice. And I thought she was drunk. And he says something to her, and she defends herself. And then he gives her a bracha that whatever she's diving for should come true. And that's what happens. And she has a child, and that child is Shmuel Hanavi. So, Chazal dissect the, this, not, when you say Tefillat Chana, usually you're referring to Perak Bey's, the ch- chapter 2 of Chana, uh, sorry, not of Chana, of Shmuel, in which she thanks Hashem for her child in a very long, poetic um, prayer. But that's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about here, her, the first time she davens, for the child. Chazal in the Gemara dissect every word of her prayer and everything that the Navi says about her prayer. It's kind of the quintessential prayer that we learn from as far as halachot and also just as far as what prayer is all about. And so I'd like to focus on three words that it says in the Pasuk, which actually come at the end of a very long discussion about Chana and her prayer. So this is a Gemara in Bracho, Staf Laman Aleph Amabez. The Chana Himidabarat Aliba. And Chana was speaking on her heart. Amar Rabbi Lazar, Mishum Rabbi Yossi ben Zimra, that Rabbi Lazar says in the name of Yossi ben Zimra, Al Iskeliba, about matters of the heart. What does that mean? So you're expecting that the Gemara is going to say something very emotional and very deep. Really, it's very technical. What does she say? Everything that you created, you didn't create anything for naught. Eyes to see and ears to hear and um, nose to smell and, and mouth to speak. And um, hands to do work and legs to walk with. And you created breasts to nurse with. These breasts that you gave me on my heart, why did you give them to me? Isn't it in order to nurse with them? Give me a child and I will nurse with them. What is the depth of Chana's argument here? This is at the end of a very long back and forth argument between her and Hashem. Well, actually, not back and forth. She's just arguing with Hashem. And she threatens Hashem. She tells him, I'm going to do all kinds of crazy things in order to get a child. And here she makes an argument that seems to be kind of be the last argument. What is the argument that she's making here? That I have a part of my body that I want to nurse with and therefore I should nurse? Like, that just doesn't seem to be such a compelling argument. So what is, there has to be some depth to this argument. So what is it? So in order to understand what her argument is, let's see how she got here to begin with. So let's go to a very famous midrash. This is a midrash that we've all learned in third grade, in fourth grade, but we're not in third grade anymore. So let's see if we can understand it on a deeper level. Why were the why were the mothers, you know, the four mothers, um, barren? Rav Levi, Mishum, Rav Sheila, Dechar, Tamarta. Okay, so Rav Levi, who's from this particular place, and someone else say. <laughs> that 
that Hashem desires their prayers and He desires for them to speak to Him. As it says, Yonasi Bechag Vehasala, it's a Pasuk and Hashem. My dove in the clefts of the rock. Yonasi Bechag Vehasala, my um, dove in the clefts of the rock. Lama Akarti Etchem, Bishfil. Why did I make you barren? Bishfiel harini at maraich hashmini et kolech, in order that you should show me your beauty and you should make me hear your song. Where is this from? So it's a pasuk in Shir Hashirim, Perak Beis pasuk Yedalid. Yonasi b'chagvei asela b'seitzer had madreka. My dove, who is in the cranny of the rock, hidden by the cliff, harini at maraich. Let me see your face. Hashmini et kolech, let me hear your voice. Ki kolech harev umareich na'ave, because your voice is sweet and your face is beautiful. Yonasi b'chag ve'hasela. So what is this referring to? And what importance does this have with regard to this medrash? You know, this medrash says that Hashem made all our mothers barren in order that they should pray. So I'm not I'm doubting the truth of Chazal. That is 100% true. But we're not in third grade anymore. So what does this mean? Meaning, on the simple level, it's nice to think that Hashem loves to hear from us and He wants a relationship with us. But He loves us and He doesn't need anything. So this is a very hard thing to understand. Sometimes we don't think of the people in Tanakh as being people. They were people. And that women, when we know and love, go through this. Every second is excruciating. So Hashem loves us so much and understands our pain. So then we believe this is true because Chazal said it, but we need to understand it more deeply. You know, this is just a side point. But as our experiences in life get more complicated and vivid and personal and nuanced, so must our understanding of Torah. This is a concept that we all know, and this is a concept that's true. But what does it mean on a different, on a deeper level? Also, with regard to the Medrash, what do we need that Pasuk for? Okay, so Hashem wants to hear from his tzaddikim. But what does this Pasuk about the bird in the rock have to do anything with anything? And not just that, but what does it add? It has to add something. So let's look at two points. So there's a Rashi, and let's look at Rashi. Rashi, on this particular Pasuk, gives us a description of this dove. So first he starts out by saying this is referring to Bnei Israel when they were going to the Yam, so if in the Mitzrim were behind them, that they were kind of trapped between the Mitzrim and the Yam. And he says, why is the mashal to a bird? To a dove that's um, fleeing from a hawk. And it... Um, it goes into the crevices of a rock. But when he gets into the crevice, he sees that there is a snake hissing at her. If she goes in more, there's a snake. But if she goes out, there's the hawk. So what does Hashem say to her? Show me your face. What is show me your face? Show me the quality of your good deeds. 
למי את פונה בעת צרה? Who will you turn to at a time of distress? So according to Rashi, what Hashem is trying to look before, before to whom do you turn, there is something about this situation that she gets herself into that reveals the quality of her deeds. So keep that in mind for a second. Let's go on to another passage that Chazal connects to this concept. Mitzarif HaKesev Akurla Zahav V'ish Lefi Mahalo A crucible for silver and a furnace for gold. And a man is tested by his praise. So what does one part of the passage have to do with another? So the Psikta Rebasi um, Mem Gimel on this pasuk says, Mahu Mitzarif HaKesev Akurla Zahav What does this mean? Just like the person who purifies metal puts the silver into the fire and the gold into the furnace, but it doesn't leave them there because then they would be totally ruined. This is the way Hashem purifies tzadikim. Each one according to his honor. What does this mean? What do you think? Like, that doesn't sound like honor, putting someone in a fire. That's the words from the Pasuk. That HaKadosh Baruch Hu purifies them according to their deeds. So what does that mean, according to their deeds? So he goes through, actually, here, the exact years of each of the imahos and how many painstaking, horrible years they were without children. And if you look carefully at the Pasuk, it doesn't say Hashem tested them as much as they could handle or as much as they could be tested. It does say that Hashem knows how much they could handle. But the important part of the Pasuk is he tests them according to their honor. What does that mean? So just look at the next um, source, source 7. This woman went through purification after purification. Until she became as great as Sarif Garachalanaya. And she became a Nevi'ah. Okay. The HaKadosh Baruch Hu Yodea Limdod Mahu Kocho Shal Kol Echad Ve'echad. Hashem knows how to measure what each person's strength is. Sheyachol Umusugal Hizdakik Vilhitalot the Ma'alot HaElyonot HaElo. That they can, what they are capable of achieving. V'humadad la Chas Reisha Nasha Kisufim Ve'erga. And he decided that 19 years was perfect for her. Of constant heartache. But for what purpose? But because Hashem wants us to suffer as much as we possibly can take. Because through these 19 years of hardship, she achieves a level of one of the imahos. It's not how much she could handle it's what she needed. 
This is a totally and completely different way of thinking about it. The other way of thinking about it is that, okay, so you might have tons of Yisurim. Not sure what the point is, but don't worry. Hashem will pick you up before you're totally broken. No. It's not this. Hashem knows how much we need, not just to test us, although I guess you can call it that but to give us an opportunity to become who we can become. She changed who she was over that time. She became something that she could not have been before. And that is why the Midrash ends with the bird sentence. Because Hashem wants to hear our beautiful voice, or like Rashi says, our beautiful deeds. Meaning we can express something in that situation through our deeds that we could not have before. And I love the muscle of a voice because a voice is something that has nuance and depth and expression and is unique in a very subtle way. And the same thing is true for us. Hashem knows our internal, pos- our eter- our internal possibilities. And therefore, He gives us an opportunity to be able to express our greatness in a very specific way. So... Anyone who has ever taken a class of mine extensively knows a little secret about me. I hate Hashgacha Pratis stories. Why do I hate Hashgacha Pratis stories? So the first reason is an obvious reason. Because everything is Hashgacha Pratis. Because it's the same amount of Hashgacha Pratis when you don't make the bus. And it's the same amount of Hashgacha Pratis when he's not your basher. And it's the same amount of Hashgacha Pratis when you didn't get that job even if the next job that you got didn't have a higher salary or a better situation or was closer to your house. It's always Hashgacha Pratis. So Hashgacha Pratis stories are really stories where Hashem did what I wanted him to do, stories. Okay, (laughs) that's the first reason. The second reason has to do with this. Because when something happens that's uncomfortable for us, and I think it really comes from a beautiful place, but... We have this feeling that something happened that I didn't want to happen, and I have to explain it. But we live in a very physical world, so how do we explain it? We explain it in a very physical, external way. And we say that this thing had to happen in order that this other physical thing would happen. So we kind of make these things up to make ourselves feel better. But really... This thing had to happen, not because of some physical external reason. There's not some physical reason thing that came out better this way. But I came out better this way. HaKadosh Baruch Hu put me in a situation where I could grow. And I couldn't possibly have grown as much in another situation. So let's go back to my silent carpool friend for a second. She was wrong. It's not just that she was insensitive, she was wrong. She didn't want to hear that someone could achieve something she couldn't. It's not better or worse. It's different and unique. Our life circumstances make us who we are, if we allow them to, for the good or for the bad. And here is what the Midrash is saying on a deeper level. It gives us the opportunity to become someone we couldn't have been if we didn't go through that. We don't like that concept so much because everything needs to be equal opportunity. So, I want to be able to have that person's achievements and development without going through that. And I'm not saying that you can't be that great. 
What I am saying is that you can't be the same. You know, it's interesting. We have this kind of um, funny story that everyone kind of believes because people tell it. So there is an old Yiddish saying that everyone has their peckle. You know, and they're like someone in camp once made up this story about if everyone threw in their peckle to the middle, you would take yours back. So sometimes I think that the connotation sounds like everyone has their peckle, meaning you know the hardships that go on in your life, but other people have hardships that go on in their life. And if you knew what they were, you would take yours back because theirs are just as bad. So I don't really like that so much because it's not really true, meaning not everyone's life is equally as difficult. Some people objectively have easier lives than others. Some people objectively have more difficult lives. So the point is not that the peckle is the same, but that it's made for you. When Hashem, when the Midrash says that Hashem knows exactly what each person is able to withstand, it means that they are able to withstand it not what they were able to withstand, it's not just because, you know, I'll give them as much as they can withstand. It's that he knows us so perfectly that he gives us exactly what we need to be able to grow, but that won't destroy us. And like the peckle, yours is made for you, but you can't be the same as someone else. Hannah could not have been Hannah with what she went through. And no one else can be Hannah. Her voice was different and her voice was special. I'll tell you two stories that I think I'll illustrate this point beautifully. I just recently met somebody, a um, very wonderful person, and she was talking to me about her own personal journey with how she had her child. And she told me that they went through four or five rounds of fertility treatments each time the doctors told her there was an 80 to 90% chance that it would take, and each time it did not. They also told her that the chances of her conceiving a child naturally and, try and carrying a child to term were below 5%, something like that. I don't remember the actual percentage that she told me. And she said time after time, the thing that was supposed to work 80 90% kept not working. And after going through this so many times and spending so much money, she decided, well, if the thing that's supposed to work doesn't work, let me try the thing that's not supposed to work. And so she stopped her fertility treatments and went to Davin. And she went to Uman. And she went all over Poland, Davin and Kibir Tzadikim. And then she went to Eretz Yisrael. And she davened. And she davened, and she davened. And nine months later, she had a child. That is not the point of the story. <laughs> the point of the story is what she told me afterward. She said, I have a miracle walking in front of me every day. She's my miracle child. I know she's a miracle. And I see it every time I look at her. Now, I love my children very much. I don't think like that. Could I increase my appreciation of my children in my own circumstances? Of course. I will never think like her. I didn't go through what she went through. And 
like I could work on it and I could have that perspective a lot and I could have the perspective more, but I will never have the perspective that she has. It doesn't make me better or worse. It means that she's unique. I also have a very close friend. She's actually a friend of my mother's. She's in between us in age who also struggled for years and years to have a child. And because of her struggles, she made a lot of changes in her life. She lived in um, very close proximity to her brothers and sisters and her brothers-in-laws and sisters-in-law. And she picked up herself and she moved because it was too difficult for her because they all had a lot of children. And she used the time and um, free time and um, brain space that she had to really become an incredibly developed person, very, very different than the person I knew when she was younger, you know, at the beginning of her marriage, trying to have a child. When this kind of hit me very, very strongly was I was in the hospital once for something, and I was remember very vividly, I was sitting in a wheelchair at the, at the elevators. And she walked in and she saw me in my hospital gown, sitting in a wheelchair. She's like, oh, what happened? Whatever. I told her what happened. And then she said, I said, why are you here? And she said, oh, I do yoga with the fertility patients. She um, developed an entire not career because she didn't charge any money, but she was a very warm, relatable person. And she was constantly in the hospital um, exercising with and spending time with women going through fertility treatments because she had been there and she had gone through it. The level of connection and compassion and acceptance that this woman had for where she was in life, she never had a child, was exceptional. And I think it would be absolutely absurd for anyone who had not gone through what she went through to think that they have achieved that level of care and compassion and empathy and acceptance in the way that she did. The reason I tell these two stories is because obviously there are different ways that that growth can translate. There have to be different ways that their growth can translate because the end of the story is different for each person. There is not always a fairy tale ending. And they are still come out great because of their journey. She is not better because she went through that hardship and she is not worse. But they are different. And the levels of spirituality and connection and development that they achieve are unique to them. That is why the Medrash brings the Pasuk of Yonasi Bechag Vehasela to explain. Just like the dove who gets stuck, there is a depth and a nuance and uniqueness to her voice and every voice in that situation that the dove or the person did not have before. Hashem puts the dove there so he can hear their special and unique song that they couldn't have sung before. As I mentioned, the voice is a fitting mashal because it is a, it has nuance. It's a little bit different. All our voices are valuable, and together we make a beautiful choir to Hashem. Voices that are all the same are boring. So we each have a different experience, 
And that different experience refines us and makes us a little bit and makes us different. And Hashem hears the nuance in our voices. The trick is to use those experiences to sing to Hashem. So in order to do it, let's go a little bit deeper into the bird and also the aspect of the bird being trapped. Why is this so and how does it work? Meaning, why is it so that we have to go through these experiences? What's the mechanism of it? So there's a uh, famous book called Ali Shore, written by Shlomo Volba, which is basically just an incredible work of character development and self-development. And this is how he opens up the work. It's really, if you think about it, stop to think about it, it's so interesting and puzzling that this is how he would open it up. He says the following, In the streets of Athens, there's a man who's walking. He stops every citizen that he meets and he asks, Every person the same question. How should one live? This question he asks all of his days. Anyone who comes in contact with him. Shoel Ze, who was this person who was constantly asking this question? Socrates. Hagadol Shupumot Haolam, the great person in the nations of the world. Okay, so interesting to open up a book of character development, of Musar, of Torah with this story. Why? Okay, let's see. So just in case you think it's only Ale Shore, and you know, Revolvo went to university, so maybe that's why he speaks like this. There is someone else, who I'm pretty sure did not go to university, who lived two generations before, who opens up his book of Jewish thought, philosophy, development in the exact same way. And that is the Chazon Ish, in a sefer called Emuna and Bitachon. Emuna and Bitachon is a very, very small sefer, which is written in the most beautiful prose. It is really almost like poetry. And um, he opens the sefer in a very interesting way. Midar Emuna hi netia daka me'adinut ha'nefesh. Faith is a refined tendency of the soul. If a person is sensitive, and is in a state of equilibrium, free of any bodily desires, and in this calm state, he looks up to the sky in wonder and down to the depths of the earth. He is moved and astounded. It must be. That was me. That must be. He doesn't say that. The world seems to him to be impenetrable. And a wondrous mystery. And this riddle, this mystery, engulfs his heart and his mind. To the point that he almost loses his senses. And loses his breath of life. And all he can think of is this mystery. Meaning, 
any regular person who doesn't allow himself to be distracted by everything that goes on in the world, and the world can be quite distracting, but if he actually takes a minute and he's a sensitive, thoughtful person to look around at the world, he will be completely and totally overwhelmed by the question of why are we here? What is going on here? Vidat Pitrono Kaltanaf show. He just longs to know the solution to this question. He would choose to go through trial of fire and water in order to find the answer to this question. Because what is life to him? If the pleasures of life are, are an unknowable mystery. And he feels dazed, bereft, and bewildered. All he wants is to know the answer to this question. All he wants is to know the mystery, but the gates are locked. This refined person who is deeply troubled agonizes still further when he reflects upon various aspects of the world and sees enough to show him clearly that the world was built according to a calculated plan, etc., etc., and he keeps going on as to the more one knows about the world, the more one asks questions, why is the world like this? It is so detailed and so exact. There must be more to it. This is his Sefer Anamuna. Wouldn't you think his Sefer Anamuna would start out? There is one God. That one God is all-powerful. That one God is all-knowing. That one God is good. With all the principles of faith that we know of, with a detailed description of what we believe, Emunah and Bitachon, it seems like he starts the book with a lack of Emunah. Why would he start that way? Why is that the opening to a book on Emuna? And in just in case the Chazonish isn't good enough, we can go all the way back to the first Baal Emuna, who of course is Avram Avinu. And the famous Medrash on Avram Avinu found the Rebbeinu Shalom. And Amar Rabbi Yitzchak, Mashal Le'echad, Shai over Mimakom Le'makom, Ver'abira Achat Doleket, Amar, Tomar, Shahabira Zo, Velo Manig, Hitzitala, Balabira. So how did um, Avram Avinu find the Rabbonu Shalom? It's like a mashal. A person sees a building burning and he starts saying, who is the owner of this building? And then the owner of the building appears and says, I am the owner of the building and goes to take care of the building. Amrlo, anihu balabira. Okay? Kach, l'fisha haya avinu Avraham omer tomer sha'olam hazeh below manhig. Avraham avinu looked around and he said, it can't be that there's no manhig. What happened? Hashem said to him, Hashem spoke to him and said, I am the, I run the world. Just think how amazing it is. We think of Avinu as being the Maimon, which he was. The Medrash doesn't say, Avinu looked around and said, obviously there's a God. Avinu looked around and said, hmm, there's something wrong here. Look at this world. There is a problem. There is a void. There is something here that doesn't make sense. It must be that there's a Baal Habira.
why is it that all these, why does, why, why does the Medrash explain the test this way? Why do we need that? The reason we need that is because that is a, how a human being works. We change as human beings and we grow as a result of a void. Our emuna comes from looking at the world and saying, the way that the world is now does not make sense. How does it make sense? With a Rabbonu Shalom, with Torah and mitzvot. That is true for every person in their own personal avoda. We go through lack, we grow, sorry, through lack, and we grow through avoid. That's how we change as human beings. When you have a barrel that's full, you can rest something on top. It won't necessarily fall, but it doesn't go into the barrel and become a part of it. The same thing is true for us. We can go through all kinds of experiences. We can look around and we can even learn things. But unless we have a place to put it, unless we realize we're lacking, unless we really have a void, we don't really change. What is the connection to what we talked about before? No one who has gone through real hardship doesn't feel exactly that void. Yisurim tear you apart. Where is Hashem? Does he exist? Why am I going through this? Why is my child going through this? I can't do this. I can't take care of her. I can't take care of him. This is not the way things are going to be. These are all thoughts that we have in response to Yisurim. Just like Chana. Chana, let's go back to what is this kind of funny technical conversation that Chazal described? Chana felt a void. She looked at Hashem and she said, there is something in me that doesn't make sense. There is something in me that is empty and I want to fill it with meaning and I want to fill it with positivity. I want to use my body to nurse my child. Hardships rip you open and create a void. And you decide what to put there. You can decide what to fill it with. You can distract yourself. You can put garbage there. Or you can grow. Hardship force us to do that. They force us to look and say, why? There is nothing wrong with why, as long as you're looking for an answer. If anything, it's the opposite. There's something wrong when you're never asking why. When your life just keeps going and you don't look at it and introspect and say, why? Why am I here? Why am I going through this? And unless you recognize that void, and unless you allow your void to be there, you can hear and experience the most amazing things in the world, and it won't matter because you're not open, because there's nowhere to put it. Hardships rip you open. They force you to look at yourself. They force you to introspect. And especially because they are specifically designed for you. When there is something wrong in your life, it is natural to look at yourself and the tools that you have. It forces you to focus. This is supposed to be what we do every day when we dive in, when we really dive in to introspect, to think about what we have and how we can do it. And this is really one of the differences between davening from good or bad. When you daven from bad, like from a bad place, when there's something wrong, 
It's mitoch hadchak. It's like from the Haggadah. It's, you have to. You don't have a choice. We live in a world where we never do that. We're always busy and we're always distracted. We never look at ourselves and see what we're missing. And hardships force us to do that. That's what it feels like to be trapped like the bird. This is the element of the bird being trapped. This is why that Pasuk is kind of the essential Pasuk describing what a person with Yusurim goes through. Because everybody who goes through real Yusurim feels trapped. They feel like everything is coming at them from all sides. And they don't know what to t- where to turn. Just like that bird. And what happens is that a Baruch Hu gives us those opportunities in order that we are forced, like the bird, to change and to grow and to sing our unique voice. But we need to be trapped in order to get there. Socrates and Lahavdil Elif Alve Abdalos, the Chazon Ish, were speaking about the world in general. But Yusurim that happened to a perfect a person specifically are more directed. Hashem sees that we need to be open in certain places. So he ki'ilu opens us up there by giving us hardship. It's not easy. And you can, as we said, distract yourself and fill it with garbage. Or you could fill it with growth. And you could fill it with connection to Hashem. Everyone fills it differently. This person becomes more patient and loving. This person starts an organization to provide financial and emotional support to people struggling with their infertility. And this one builds a deeper, more meaningful connection with Hashem. And my friend, who still doesn't have children, goes to hospital and does yoga with women getting treatments and holds their hands and tells them they can have a beautiful, meaningful life even if it doesn't work. And she was a wonderful person before, but now she's a different wonderful person. And she's a more uniquely sculpted person. And everybody has their unique journey. And no one can tell you how to fill it but you. So in preparation for Rosh Hashanah, what are we doing? We are turning to Hashem and we are saying, I have a void and I want to fill it with you. I want to fill it with meaning. I want to fill it with connection. I want to fill it with connection to you. I want to fill it with development. I want to grow as a human being. And the first step is that void. And especially around this time of year, it is so difficult not to feel like those voids are negative and bad. You want to go in Rosh Hashanah with like a razor sharp vision. These are things I've done wrong. These are things I'm going to do right. I have a flow chart and this is how I'm going to get to be a big tzaddik. Those feelings of not knowing where you've gone wrong, but feeling a void, especially this time of year, is so difficult. Those feelings are the basis for your avodas Hashem. I am lacking. I have chasronos. I have areas that are just off. I, those question, I question, I don't feel Hashem all the time. Where is he? Etc. All of those things are things that are a springboard for Avodah Hashem. Not, not just a springboard. They are the vessel that we fill with personal growth.
So in preparation for Rosh Hashanah, I have two suggestions. One is for ourselves. Let us find a void. It doesn't need to be the biggest void, but a void. And see it and concentrate and be with it for a few minutes. And then think about how we want to fill it. My second suggestion is to use the same concept, but to appreciate other people. Because there are many different types of voids. Some are dramatic, some are more difficult than others. But everyone has a void. And their void is their unique opportunity for development. So some people have difficulties in their marriage. Some people have difficulties in Parnassa. Some people are socially awkward and some people don't have friends. And when I look at these people, I don't just think to myself, oh, never. And I don't just think to myself, oh, they're not as great as me. I think to myself, wow, their hardship or their void is what makes their development and their neshama unique and special. And it allows me to appreciate other people on a much deeper level. So in preparation for Rosh Hashanah, we want to recognize our own void. That, so that we can use it to grow. But we want to recognize other people's voids also so we can appreciate them and who they are as people. And the things that might seem like negatives are really a positive opportunity for their growth and their unique development. Let's go back to that Pasuk one more time. My dove who is hidden and trapped in the cleft of the mountain up high. Let me see your beauty or your your face. Let me see your beauty. Um, let me hear your voice. And then the end of the Pasuk which really is the explanation for everything. Why? Because your voice is sweet and your image is beautiful. Ultimately, the only way that we can accept this is if we understand that the reason that Hashem gives us these opportunities is because He is the only one who knows how sweet and how beautiful we really are.